0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick Michikanis, the host of today's podcast. Today we'll be talking to Professor Jeffrey Hurf about his new book, Israel's Moment: International Support for and Opposition to Establishing the Jewish State 1945 to 1949. Jeffrey Hurf is a distinguished university professor of modern European history at the University of Maryland in College Park. He is also the author of Undeclared Wars with Israel, East Germany and the West German Far Left, 1967 to 1989, Nazi Propaganda for the Arab World, and Divided Memory of the Nazi Past in the Two Germanys, among other works. He has published numerous essays of political commentary in the Washington Post, American Interest, Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, Die Welt, and the Times of Israel. Professor Herf, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, Professor Herf, I would like to start off by asking how did you come to write Israel's Moment and could you tell me a little bit more about your other works in German history in the Middle East and and how these tie together?
1: Well, this audience uh, may be familiar with some of my previous work. You mentioned Nazi propaganda for the Arab world. Uh, uh, Since 9-11, I uh, became more and more interested uh, in the connections between uh, the afterlife of Nazism, let's just let let's just let me make that make that as a theme. The uh, nachwirkung des Nationalsozialismus. and of course that's a major theme uh, for historians of post-war Europe uh, and post-war Germany. Uh, uh, well, uh, I became more and more interested uh, in. Uh, al-Qaeda, in uh, Hamas, uh, in uh, the similarities between the Islamist ideology and, and the themes of fascism and Nazism, and I wasn't alone in that regard. So um, uh, Nazi propaganda for the Arab world, which is a, uh, rests a lot on work in the National Archives that are a mile from our offices at the University of Maryland, uh, presented evidence that the State Department had and during World War II regarding the collaboration of um, uh, Hajime and al-Husseini and other Arab leaders with the Nazis. And uh, so Nazi propaganda for the Arab world was um, uh, a pioneer in work in that regard. Uh, and uh, uh, along with work by Klaus Gensicke and uh, Matthias Kunzel and Martin Coopers, uh, David uh, Martato, uh others, uh, uh, we have um, I think contributed to what is an ongoing fundamental revision um, of the history of the establishment of the state of Israel and then the origins of these, of the Israeli Arab conflict. Uh, the, um, uh, uh, that is an ongoing revision. And, uh, uh, so uh, that, that's one, one, one element of the beginning of this book. Uh, the, um, uh, another uh, is uh, that uh, since the uh, beginning of uh, the effort to boycott, sanction and divest and isolate the state of Israel uh, that began in 2006 and uh, has been a factor on American campuses and over the last 10, 15 years, I, uh, I had the pleasure or rather the unpleasure of listening to a lot of, uh, excuse the expression on this program, lies. Um, about the foundation of the State of Israel. And one of the big lies was that the American imperialism, something called American imperialism, had something to do with the establishment of the State of Israel. Um, and uh, Edward Said uh, and his influential work uh, contributed a lot to these misconceptions. Uh, and I had an inkling from my previous work that this was all wrong, uh, but uh, there was a need for uh, work in the archives to demonstrate uh, the realities of the 1940s. Uh, So it was it was out of those inklings, those uh, intimations, uh, hunches that uh, that I decided to write my first book. That's not about German history, uh, because in 1945 to 49, as this audience knows, uh, the Germans were under allied occupation, uh, both in the Soviet sector and the Western sectors. And there was no German foreign policy. So, So the sovereign German state played no role whatsoever, plus or minus in the establishment of the Jewish state. Uh, Instead, it was a matter of, of course, uh, the the Jews and the Arabs themselves in former Mandate Palestine and uh, the Soviet bloc, uh, Western Europe and the United States and at the United Nations. And that's where the action was. And the book is, um, again... As with several of my previous books, draws is a deeply diplomatic history, uh, transnational, international history. Draws on the, the enormous files of the United States State Department, the Pentagon, the Central Intelligence Agency here in College Park. Uh, and on the records of the United Nations. And then on the records of the French Foreign Ministry and Interior Ministry. I had the good fortune, for the first time, of testing my French and working in the archives in Pierrefitte and La Courneuve. So um, the um, uh, that's uh, the book. In other words, is a book that perhaps not only a German historian could write, but it is a book that emerges very much uh, out of the tradition of alphabetung der Nazi Vergangenheit and uh, seen to it that uh, uh, that the worst doesn't happen again. Uh, to uh, paraphrase Theodore Adorno. So th- those are some of the starting points.
0: Mm -hmm. no that's that's fascinating and i would like to ask you a little bit more as you kind of diverged from um, the german focus you write that the u.s government was far less supportive of a jewish state than the ussr from 1945 to 1949 and we'll come back to the the ussr and and the eastern bloc could you talk a little bit about the u.s and some some who were some of the key institutions and figures that played
1: sure sure yeah Uh, well the title israel's moment um is uh uh the result of my brilliant wife sonia michelle uh uh and uh, uh she got to the core of the of the matter uh israel's moment was that moment uh from 1945 to 49 especially 47 to 48 when uh the president of the united states agreed with the uh leaders of the soviet bloc uh that uh, the Zionist project would be a good idea uh the establishment of the state of Israel overlapped with the beginning of the Cold War. And the key, uh, uh, the spring of 47 is crucial in that regard. It's that spring that Truman gives his Truman Doctrine speech, that George Marshall gives the famous Marshall Plan speech at Harvard, uh, uh, and that the uh, the, the anti-Hitler coalition of the Second World War begins to break down and uh, the Cold War begins. Uh, And it's in that spring as well when the Cold War is beginning and the the American national security establishment is shifting uh, from the anti-fascism of of the priority of anti-fascism in World War II to the priority of anti-communism and containment. It's precisely then that the Zionist issue emerges—the issue of whether or not there are going to be two states in former mandate Palestine, Arab state, Jewish state. So the um uh. Uh, what has, what, what the, the, book explains that in New York among journalists and, uh, liberal activists in Washington, among, uh, liberal politicians, such as Senator Robert Wagner and Emmanuel Seller among French socialists and communists, uh, the support for the establishment of the state of Israel touches a deep emotional curve, uh, in the United States and Western Europe, uh, uh. And public opinion is, is increasingly favorable. And uh, it's in, uh, in the Soviet Union, sh- uh, stuns the United States and the world. In May of 47, when it's the United Nations, Andre Bumiko gives a famous speech uh, in support of the establishment of an Arab state and a Jewish state in former Mandate Palestine. It's in the summer of 1947 that British foreign minister Ernst Bevin and the Secretary of State George Marshall have conversations in which Bevan makes clear that he views the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine, uh, not only uh, as undermining the British Empire in the Middle East, but uh, making but in Bevan's view, it would advance the cause of the Soviet Union and communism in the region, and it would undermine Western access to oil. Uh, Marshall finds both of these arguments plausible. Uh, in the fall of 1947. George Marshall and his appointee, George Kennan, famous author of the Long Telegram about uh, containing the Soviet Union and communism, that Kennan and Lloyd Henderson and uh, uh, organized something called the Pentagon Talks uh, that take place in Washington in September and October that bring together the British and American military diplomatic elite, leadership rather. The question is what does the policy of containment? mean for our policy in the Middle East. And a consensus emerges at the Pentagon talks, which Kennan then articulates in memos of January and February of 1948, that the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine is not compatible with American national security interests, uh, both because it would foster and enhance the prospect of the Soviet Union and communism in the Middle East, in his view, and would undermine Western access to oil when it is needed for the economic of Western Europe. So the big strategic picture uh, of 1947-48, Marshall, Kennan, Robert Lovett, James Forrestal, uh, Ernst Bevin, is Europe. Uh, that's the key. Uh, the Cold War is beginning, and it's all about Europe. And Israel and Palestine, Zionism, Arabs, that's all a sideshow. It's an emotional centerpiece. Uh, the, uh, the, the emotionally, it's not at all a sideshow, but strategically, for the State Department and the British Foreign Office, it's a sideshow and it's an irritant. Uh, and so, one of the things that Israel's moment does is to document the consistent, emphatic uh, opposition of the national security establishment of the United States against the establishment of the Jewish state in Palestine. So the notion. Heard on campuses in the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years that American imperialism has something to do with the establishment of the state of Israel is just flat wrong. It's not, it's not a misinterpretation, it's just false. Uh, and its repetition uh, about Zionism, colonialism, Zionism, and imperialism doesn't make it true because it's just false. And uh, it's unfortunate that a literature professor like Saeed, who didn't pay attention uh, or didn't know the documents, uh, would have had such an enormous influence over the academy. Um, so I, I think Israel's moment will be a very important book, uh, for a lot of people who think they know a lot, uh, about how Israel was established, uh, to read Zionism, the Zionist project, 1947, 1948 was an anti-imperialist and anti-colonial project. And it was seen that way by liberals and leftists at the time, uh, both in Washington, in New York and in Paris, uh, in Moscow, in Warsaw, uh, in uh, in Prague, the Zionist project was seen as part of a global anti-colonial revolt. Uh, uh, things changed after, after the Soviet Union changed its policy, but uh, uh, the um, uh, I think that, that I think those parts of the book that deal with the memos of the State Department and the Pentagon, uh, which was even more anti-Zionist, uh, will come as a bit of a shock to a lot of people who have become who have become accustomed to associating Zionism with colonialism. or no,
0: oh, that's that's fascinating. I mean, it's in, in all too often a lot of people don't understand the debate that's going on and how, how this fits in. I'm wondering, in addition to talking about kind of how there were some key figures in the State Department who actually were against the establishment of the Jewish state, could you talk a little bit about how these arguments played a role in President Truman's decision to
1: Um, decide against these? Yeah, Harry Truman was a remarkable man, and the more I thought about after reading the book, uh, after writing the book, rather, I read it too, but after writing the book, um, uh, I thought a lot about the similarities between Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman, and they were were all, I mean, Truman was a little bit younger uh, than Churchill or Roosevelt, but basically they were all Protestants, and uh, None of them wore their religion on their sleeve. Uh, they didn't make a big deal of it in public. But they were—they did see themselves as in the traditions of Christianity. And they understood them. They all had read the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was a generation that uh, had read, that read the Gospels, read the Torah. These were not alien documents to these gentlemen. And I, I think that the three of them, implicitly, uh, understood that the Second World War was a war that was about defining Christianity as a philo-Semitic phenomenon, and that without Judaism there would have been no Christianity, and that the accusation of deicide had been wrong at the beginning, and that the Holocaust was one of its results. And so, for the three of them, and for Truman, uh, there was a deeply emotional and, uh, and theological uh, aspect to the establishment of the Jewish state. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, that the Jews did have a claim, uh, to be historic, uh, uh residents of, uh, of, uh, ancient Palestine and modern Palestine. Uh, and, uh, so that was important for Harry Truman. On the other hand, Harry Truman was the president of the United States. And one of the things that, uh, that, I, that I and others, uh, Ron and Alice Radosh among others, uh, uh. Uh, is, is it, I think it's Peter Hahn, I may have his first name wrong. Uh, other historians have indicated, uh, uh, biographers of Truman, that he needed to have an argument that the establishment of the Jewish state was not what George Marshall and George Kennan said it was going to be, but that the Jewish state in Palestine would enhance American national security interests. Uh, after all, he, as the president of the United States, he couldn't really be on record as supporting the establishment of a state that was going to undermine uh, the national interest of the United States. So uh, he was open emotionally to the arguments that I just mentioned, but the strategic arguments came from his lawyer, Clark Clifford, who's, who pointed out or argued, and he was not the only one. Uh, Robert Wagner, Manuel Seller, uh, politicians made the, that the Jewish state would be. Uh, emphatically in support of uh, democratic institutions and values, would be an ally of the United States, would not be a Trojan horse for the Soviet Union, Uh, and that the Arab states had a lot of oil in the ground, but in 1947-48, they needed to sell it to somebody. And it didn't do them any good if it wasn't sold. And and the markets were in Western Europe and the United States, uh, so the Arab threats of boycott were hollow. And with those arguments, uh, Harry Truman emerged as uh, that very unusual mixture of a liberal anti-communist who was also a Zionist. He was the only one in the administration. There were people on Capitol Hill in the editorial offices, but uh, he—he uh, was—he was the exception that proved the rule uh, that of uh, being both in support of the Zionist project and launching the Cold War. Uh, it was not, sometimes not an easy argument to square, but he did it, uh, and, uh, uh, but that said, uh, there were limits to what the president could do, and he, he, he could not, if he wanted to lift the arms embargo on arms to the Middle East that with the United States and then the UN imposed, he would have basically had to fire the second most famous person in the United States, named George Marshall, and George Cannon, and Robert Lovett, and James Forrest. He had to fire his entire national security leadership team when he was trying to launch the Cold War, and that was impossible. So um, there was just so much he could do, uh, and that did not include sending weapons to the Jews when they needed them.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. I, I, I want to kind of shift to, so we've talked a little bit about the U.S. and their approach here. So you write that the passions of World War II and the Holocaust shaped Israel's moment, and I'm wondering if we can look at could you talk about how anti-fascist views looked in the
1: USSR at this time, with the question of the establishment for a Jewish? Well, well, there's two elements of anti-fascism. There's liberal anti-fascism in New York, mm-hmm. uh, and then there's uh, uh, Soviet policy. So let's start with the first. Um, the um, uh, the journalists uh, at the Nation magazine, the flagship of American left liberalism, the Daily PM, which was a kind of Popular Front left leaning daily in new york uh the new york post which was then a left liberal news uh tabloid uh all of them in from 1945 up to 1949 were raising the issue of nazi collaboration by the arab leadership urging that Hajim al Husseini be brought uh to trial in nuremberg uh, for his propagandistic uh um, radio broad efforts on behalf of the Nazis, uh, and, uh, and argued that the Arab attack on the UN partition plan was not only an attack on the Jews, uh, this was an attack on the United Nations. And in 1947, the phrase United Nations evoked the memories of the alliance of the, quote, United Nations that were at war against Nazi Germany, uh, Italy, and Japan. Uh, so. That element of anti-fascism uh, was crucial uh, for the Stout. Zionist project was seen in other for them, for I.F. Stone, for Frida Kerchway, for Alexander Uhl, uh, for Emmanuel Seller, for Robert Wagner, for um, uh, Sumner Wells, former Under Secretary of State, a, as a continuation of the uh, liberal uh, and left-liberal passions of the Roosevelt era. Uh, and that was one of the favorite, my favorite parts of the book uh, in writing about the meaning of liberalism and left liberalism uh, uh, and their denunciations of the oil industry, uh, of British imperialism. Uh, uh, and the same was true of French socialists and French communists. There they they were members of the Central Committee of the French Communist Party who viewed the Zionists as part of a broader global anti-colonial revolt. And that, that, that is either not, not at all known or forgotten. Uh, by, by, by young and not so young readers. And I, I, I regard that as one of the most pleasurable aspects of writing the book. And, and as for the Soviet bloc, of course, Stalin uh, himself was an anti-Semite and uh, had, his heart did not beat for uh, the Jews. But he, for power political reasons, thought that the establishment of a Jewish state would drive the British out of the Middle East. So that was Stalin's uh, bet. Uh, in 1947 you. Why don't we we'll, let Gromyko uh, uh, you know, give emotional speeches at the UN and talk about how horrible the Holocaust was and uh, generate a few uh, tears and uh, some sobbing and, 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 and we'll, we'll drive the British out of the Middle East. Won't that be great? And then we'll have Europe by the throat and as far as the oil is concerned and uh, uh, onward with uh, the glorious uh, Soviet revolution and world communism. So that's Stalin. Uh, uh, but Gromyko and uh, the Polish representative, Alfred Kierkevich, the Ukrainian representative, the uh, Ukrainian SSR of Vasil Tarasenko, uh, uh, gave very impassioned speeches at the United Nations about the Holocaust and about Nazism and fascism. And for them, the power political, they're diplomats, so they were their power political as elements were certainly there. But when they spoke about the issue, uh, they spoke about anti-Semitism. They, they, they spoke about Nazis. They spoke in favor of an Arab state and a Jewish state. Uh, and uh, uh, so the book is a history of emotions as well as a history of power, power Uh And I know that historians have spoken about the importance of history of emotions uh, in recent decades. And so, you know, the book is over is not overladen with a lot of fancy theorizing about history of emotions, but it's there. Uh, and uh, when Alfred Fedorovich, uh told his colleagues at the United Nations on May 12th of 1947 that uh, he knew that uh, one to one and a half million Jews were murdered in Auschwitz-Birkenau because he was there and he saw it uh, and he was a survivor, uh, that was a pretty compelling moment. So the... Um, uh, And the Czechs uh, made some money selling some weapons to Israel, but uh, they didn't have to break. They had other ways of making money. And when the Jews needed the weapons in 1947, 48, 48, rather, they came from communist Czechoslovakia. And uh, the more the Soviet bloc uh, facilitated Jewish immigration to Palestine, the more the weapons came from Czechoslovakia. The more Marshall, and Kennan, and Lovett, and Forrestal, and others in the State Department, and the British Foreign Office, and Fevin, and others, were convinced that there was a connection between Zionism and communism. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the arguments in favor of the Cold War in those quarters cut against support for the Jewish state.
0: Well, this is, this has been fascinating. Professor Herb, we've taken up a lot of your time. We have just one more question um, for today, yeah. and that's just you. You write about all these te- tensions that existed, but one thing I just wanted to talk with you about was this debate about post-war justice, and mm, I'm wondering yeah. if you could talk a little bit more about, in particular, the stories of Haj Amin al-Husseini and the consequences of him not being held on trial. The debates between American, British, and French um, legal teams, and what role this ultimately played in shaping the early years for the Israeli state. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, again, you as a young um, you know, historian of post-war Germany uh, uh, and other historians of post-war Europe and post-war Germany. Um, uh, some of the senior people like the late Tony Jutt or uh, our colleague Henry Russo, uh, uh, but but many, many uh, other uh, younger historians. My, 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 I put a plug for my, my, my students, uh, uh, Robert Hutchinson and Samuel Miner and uh, Christina Marina and uh, uh, others who, uh, but there are many others, I mean, many, uh, th- those, the audience uh, knows uh, how central the question of justice and memory uh, of reckoning and amnesia is in post-war German history. So uh, everybody knows that uh, the Nuremberg trials convicted a number of big shots and that there were other trials in post-war Germany that uh, indicted and convicted uh, thousands of people. People also know that there were many larger number of hundreds, thousands and thousands of people with blood on their hands who got away, right? So all of this is there are many books, articles. This is not new. What was the case for the people who got away and were able to amazingly reinvent themselves as uh, uh, marvelous Democrats with a small d in the 1950s was that none of them became major national political figures. They might get elected as mayor, uh, or they might reinvent themselves as Democrats uh, and uh, insist that their, their Nazi-era youthful sins were behind them, and they wouldn't want to have anything more to do with that. One, one thinks of Kurt Kiesinger uh, uh, in West Germany, for example. But it was n- not the case, as far as I know, maybe people listening know of some examples, counter-examples, that there were former Nazis who remained committed Nazis and then had a successful political career in post-war Europe—that I don't know of. Um, people who, okay, Benjamin al-Husseini is exceptional in that he did not abandon his Nazi-era convictions. He was a a a, a profoundly uh, uh, had a profound hatred of Judaism, of Jews, of Zionism. Uh, a re- theologically based, there was no ambiguity whatsoever uh, that his opposition to the Zionist project was the result of his antisemitism, uh, to use the modern phrase for Jew hatred. Uh, the distinct, the, the, the book examines a fascinating year in which the French government had the man under house arrest outside Paris. And they had the decision, should we, should we as Emmanuel Seller and, uh, I.F. Stone and Alexander Uhl and other American liberals were urging, send him to Nuremberg uh, uh, or to Yugoslavia uh, to put him on trial for his by then famous uh, uh, radio diatribes uh, in support of Nazism in Arabic. Uh, the French government decided not to do that. And the book examines the conversations between Husseini and the officials that he spoke with from, uh, from summer of 48 and fall of 48. Uh, in which it became apparent that the French government understood that leniency towards Husseini would, would lead to goodwill towards France in North Africa, in Syria, and in Lebanon, and in leaders of the Arab League. And it was quite cynical, uh, but uh, now it's well documented. And so Husseini returned to Egypt, and then he became leader of the Arab Higher Committee, and uh, the argument that Israel's moment makes and this is an argument that Matthias Quintzel has made as well, uh, and others, is that Husseini's decision to reject the UN partition plan of 1947, which would have created an Arab state as well as a Jewish state, and then to launch the war of 1947, and then to urge the Arab states to to invade in 1948, that those decisions to reject the partition plan were in tune with the ideas he had expressed since 1937 in an essay called Islam and the Jews, uh, so that the beginnings of what is called the uh, Israel-Arab conflict, uh, they go back to the 19th century, but the beginnings of the actual war uh, to attempt to prevent the establishment of a Jewish state has far, far more to do with the after effects of Nazism than has been Uh, sufficiently understood in the historical scholarship in recent years. So that brings us back to our starting point of our conversation. Uh, And uh, in my view, and it was also the view of people at the time, the failure to indict him and put him on trial was a horrible strategic blunder, a moral disaster. Because had it happened, it's possible, who knows, but possible, that more moderate figures might have emerged in 1947-48, and there might have been Arab leaders that wanted to establish a state of their own uh, then, and this long conflict uh, would either not have taken place or would have taken a very different form. So the questions of German historians, of Alfred Biden, the Nazi Vergangenheit, of reckoning and memory versus amnesia and avoidance, Those questions that have preoccupied myself and I'm sure other people who are listening to this podcast for decades, these questions apply uh, to understanding uh, why the war of 1947-48 took place and why a peaceful compromise was not reached.
0: Well, Professor Herf, this has been a fascinating discussion. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. And I highly recommend the book, Israel's Moment, International Support for and Opposition to Establishing the Jewish State 1945 to 1949 is available through Cambridge University Press, as well as Amazon and other major book distributors.
1: It's been a real pleasure, Dr. Herf. Thank you so much for being here. Well, Nick, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And let me just add that uh, I'm assuming that this audience includes uh, colleagues and uh, professors and graduate students. So of course, I'd be, if and when any of you plunge into this almost 500-page tome, and you want to send me emails and comments, criticisms, suggestions, howling protests, uh, also a, a nice email is nice to receive, uh, uh, please do so. I, I, I love correspondence.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Professor Herf, and you take care.
1: Okay. You too. Thank Thanks. You.